0: Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 11, which is the entire chapter. The word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, but they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 9 this evening. The word of our God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Please keep your place here in First Peter, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. If there was one night in the life of Simon Peter that he would always remember, this was it. Shockingly, Over his own protest, Jesus had wrapped himself in the garments of a servant, and then he had gone disciple to disciple, washing their filthy feet. And after he did that, he established the Lord's Supper, the sacrament by which we would receive Christ and celebrate and proclaim his victorious death until he comes again. Those are not the types of things that a true disciple would forget. But I say with certainty, but the thing that Peter most remembered from that night was what Jesus said next. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Naturally Peter protested. You would have protested too. Don't don't pick on Peter for this. But Peter protested, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then Jesus solemnly replied, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times in fact, denying that he even knew him. Can you imagine the shame that Peter must have felt early that next morning after having denied his Lord and Savior three times, he heard the rooster crow. The Bible tells us he went out and wept bitterly. Peter came to know his own weakness in the most profound way. Yet he would also come to know that Christ's prayer for him, his prayer that he would be restored, was completely efficacious. And he would come to know that God's grace in Christ was greater than all sin, even his. So Peter would spend the rest of his life feeding Christ's sheep and strengthening his brethren. That's what he's doing in this passage in his first epistle here in 1 Peter. In the opening verses of this letter, Peter is strengthening us. He strengthens the brethren in three ways. In verses 1 and 2, Peter strengthens us by telling us who we are. In verses 3 through 5, Peter strengthens us by telling us what God has done. And in verses 6 through 9, Peter strengthens us by telling us how the Lord is using our suffering for our own good and for his glory. We begin with Peter telling, strengthening us by telling us who we are. Look again at verse 1 with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of a dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, it's not surprising that the people that Peter is writing to need encouragement. They're, after all, described as exiles. That is, these people were a mixed group, Part of them almost certainly would have come from Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas who were Jewish Christians driven out of the area by their unbelieving Jewish relatives who were not willing to tolerate these people proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. But another group, and perhaps a fairly large group, would have been exiled from Rome. There's markers of that in the passage. Um, Claudius... Um, the emperor, and this would have taken place at the end of the fifth decade of the first century, or perhaps at the very beginning of the sixth decade of the first century, sometimes timing these things is a little trickier than we might think, um, he expelled all the Jews from Rome. And when he did that, the Jewish Christians had to leave. And The five places that Peter mentions here are all Roman colonies. And so some of these Jewish Christians, having been exiled from their homes, would have traveled together to these various locations in what is now modern-day Turkey. Now, how would they have uh, experienced that sense of exile from their homeland? It would have given them a terrible sense of alienation to be driven from their homes into a strange land, even much more so than it does today. Uh, For one thing, they wouldn't have had all the modern communications and been able to get in touch with people. They also would have been dependent very much on their social networks. You know, there was no social security system or Medicare or anything like that in Israel. and There wasn't anything like that in Rome either. Rather, it was all this extended networks of large families and patron-client relationships that people relied on for regular support, for help in time of need, for job opportunities, and so on. People worked together. They were being cut off from that. And we should remember they were living at a time where the primary means of wealth was property, and they couldn't take their property with them. That is, they were now propertyless people wandering into a new place where most of them had never been before. Humanly speaking, they had a lot of reasons to be discouraged. Uh, One commentator tried to compare this image to uh, Cuban exiles, who literally left everything behind and got in small boats and somehow made it to the United States. But actually, that misses part of what is going on. Because after all, those Cuban exiles are arriving in the land of opportunity. These Jewish exiles are going to a place where they know that those in power are going to look down upon them. They are going to a place that's still governed by Rome and the Romans that are causing them trouble. And they have every expectation that they are going to have difficulty pursuing their vocations or building businesses in their new homes. They were marginalized. I should say that there's some markers in this passage that indicate, uh, not in this passage, but in 1 Peter that indicate there's probably some Gentiles there too. They're not all Jewish Christians. Uh, But those people, too, could be called exiles in the sense that they were marginalized from their society, even if, in fact, they hadn't been driven out of their homeland. Although it is possible that there were Gentile Christians starting to unite with the church in Rome, made up primarily of Jewish Christians, who chose to travel with their brothers and sisters in the faith in order to come here as well. And they, too, would have experienced exile in terms of the land. Well, thankfully, it is unlikely that many of us will be forcibly driven from our homeland. But all of us live with other people, including other people of importance in our culture and in your personal lives, who look down upon you because you follow Jesus Christ. Who, at the very least, think that's kind of odd. And you guys can't be very smart, or you wouldn't be believing these sort of silly myths that get promulgated as the opiate of the masses. A great deal of how we navigate our lives is going to depend on which voices we listen to. Do we listen to those voices of the critics of Christianity in our day, including perhaps among our own family members and our workplaces who say a Christian can't be a serious individual, Um, you're kind of marginalized in a lot of ways and increasingly now no longer simply silly and wrong but evil for not embracing things like same-sex marriage and transgenderism and so on are those the voices that we're going to listen to or do we primarily listen to the voice of our God see Peter is telling us here that yes you are marginalized in your society And there are people who are going to speak badly of you. But that is not who you are. You are not merely exiles. You are elect exiles. That is, you are chosen by God. If we listen too closely to the voices of those who despise us, we can end up being crushed under the weight of their opinions. But I tell you again, Peter is saying, That's not really who you are. You are not merely exiles. You are elect exiles. God has set his love on you since before the foundation of the world. You are chosen and precious in his sight. How are we chosen? Please notice the full involvement of all three persons of the Trinity. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And God's grace doesn't just get us started. It's an ongoing reality in our lives. Peter says, may the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the present. Well, let's unpack those blessings just a little bit. We are chosen by God. Now, the foreknowledge of God that is spoken of here is not a foreknowledge where God is looking down the corridors of history so that he can know what is going to happen in your life. Uh, It is true, of course, that God does possess that sort of knowledge. He possesses all knowledge. But this foreknowledge has to do with the idea of knowledge being love and commitment. The Bible regularly uses knowledge in that way. You know, when Adam is said to know his wife Eve and she becomes pregnant, that is not because Adam recognized her and goes, oh yeah, you're Eve. And she said, oh, now I'm pregnant. That's not how the language is getting used. And so in this context, this is very common in the Bible, this idea of knowing has to do with an idea of loving. And we're told that God loved us before time began. He foreknew us in that sense. As Luther points out, the fact that God loved us before time began reminds us that God's love for us is absolutely certain. God the Father set his love upon you before you were ever born, and he will not let you go. You were chosen by God the Father and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, we normally use the term sanctification, talk about that progressive work, the lord is doing in our lives which is transforming us more and more into the likeness of christ as we die unto sin and learn to live for righteousness but that's not what this passage is referring to this is referring to sanctification in terms of being set apart as belonging to god in a special way holy in that way and, and so just as in the old testament uh, a person could take a silver vessel that was just for common use and devote it to the temple. It would, In being devoted to the temple, they would wash it, and it would be a bit of a ceremony, and it would move from being common to being holy. It's positional sorts of language. That's what the Holy Spirit has done for you at the very moment that he caused you to believe in Jesus Christ. You once were a stranger to God and the promises. He has now brought you near to God as a member, and you are a saint, Regrettably, our lives do not yet fully reflect our new status. Uh, That's actually what we refer to normally by progressive uh, sanctification, is you are in fact holy. You're not living that way. And the Holy Spirit is conforming you to what you already are in Jesus Christ, a saint in the eyes of God. So as I say, regrettably, our lives don't yet fully reflect our status. But we are already perfectly holy in position and in principle. This is a down payment on the glorious reality that one day we will be perfectly holy in character as well. I don't know about you, but I sometimes have difficulty imagining that about myself, even though I know God's doing it. But it's easier for me to see God doing it for you than for me. By faith we know it's absolutely true. The last phrase, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, uh, may be a bit difficult for you to sort out when you just get it. It's kind of like, okay, that's all important stuff, but I'm not sure what's going on. The key is to realize that Peter is using explicit covenant-making language from the book of Exodus. say that again because I mumbled it a bit. He's using explicit covenant-making language from the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8, we read this. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant but the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Did you catch the order here? That's actually a real clue of what Peter's referring back to. The people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Then Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. Peter follows this very same order so that we don't miss the point. He's connecting these two passages for us. And the main point, and it's also one that Moses explicitly declares, is this. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. See, the emphasis both for Moses and for Peter is not on our obedience. It's not that your obedience is unimportant. That's not the heart of the matter, though. The emphasis both for Moses and for Peter is that God is graciously entering into a covenant with us and he is signifying that with blood. And the old covenant was ceremonial, but Peter is referring to the shed blood of Jesus Christ that actually does take away our sins. We have been chosen by God, the Father, in love. We have been set apart as belonging to God through the work of the Holy Spirit, And we have been signed, sealed, and delivered through the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit through Peter is saying, that is who you are. And that ought to give you courage to live for God in the week ahead. Please look at verses 3 through 5 with me. This is the movement from who we are in Christ to what I think is a natural consequence of that, praising the triune God for what he has done. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Having encouraged us with who we now are in Christ, Peter leads us to worship in verses that could very well be sung or prayed. Those of you with musical gifts might want to give that a try. I'm I'm not going to do that. Uh, Although my mother-in-law has told me that there's actually an anthem that uses um, part of this uh, verse in it. Uh, our Jewish friends have for thousands of years, actually, begun many of their prayers by saying, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu. Blessed are you, Lord our God. It's a very standard way of praying. What I want you to see is that's precisely what Peter is doing here. He's taking this, this Jewish pattern of prayer, but It's just part of his thinking, it probably comes out of it. He may not have even had to consider it. But he redefines it a little bit. What, what he does here is, is he defines who our God is with a fuller expression. God is now fully known as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He's taking his Jewish heritage And he's expanding on it because our God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what makes that so encouraging for us is Jesus came to identify us fully. He he identified with us so that we would be like him. And that means when we confess that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that also implies he's the God and Father of us. We now pray to God as our Father because we are in Jesus This is a glorious truth in itself. And it's one that we really need to remind ourselves of and not take the fatherhood of God in our lives for granted. In verses 3 through 9, Peter is going to draw out some of the blessings that this union with Christ brings to us as it relates to Christ's resurrection from the dead. And I think David Strain has really given us a very helpful breakdown of this. And I'm going to give you the very same four points that he uses. Um, These four benefits that we receive from Christ's resurrection as enumerated by David strain. First, in verse 3, we are told that because Jesus rose again, we have new life. Second, in verse 5, we are told that because Jesus rose again, we have new hope. Third, also in verse 5, we are told that because Jesus rose again, we have a new security. And fourth, in verses 6 through 9, because Jesus rose again, we have a new joy. New life, new hope, new security, and new joy are all yours because Jesus fully identified with you to live the life that you should have lived and to die the death that you should have died and to rise again so that in union with you, you too would rise again, now already for your justification, but when Christ comes again, unto eternal glory. I wonder how many of you know this very simple song by Bill Gaither. Uh, I remember in the 80s, when I was traveling around with Calvary Chapel and in the military going uh, around the world to uh, Christian servicemen centers, we sang this all the time, It's very simple. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. That's what Peter is saying here, although Peter is saying it in a more theologically robust way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just important for Jesus. And it's not simply something that punctuates Jesus' life that proves he was who he says he was. It does do that. But because Jesus is united to you by his own sovereign choice, you rise with him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is how God is bringing about new creation. And if you are in Christ, you already participate in this new creation. Uh, By the way, a little twerk there on on, um, translating. We commonly say, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. It's not wrong. The word he is is actually added. I, I think it's actually helpful for us to see that what is being said by the Apostle Paul is this. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. That is, there are now men and women who are in Christ. And either way, that is you. In Christ, you participate in the new creation that God is bringing into this world. In Christ and through his bodily resurrection, you have new life, you have new hope, you have new security, and you have new joy. The hope and security come to us from these truths, and it stands in stark contrast to the widespread hopelessness of our times. For all of our material wealth, hopelessness has become rampant in American society. And and I'm not a great social critic, but from my standpoint, it seems like the problem of hopelessness is getting worse with each passing year. And it's hitting our young people particularly hard. Get this statistic. Among American adolescents between 15 and 19 years of age, the three leading causes of death are accidents, homicide, and suicide. Two out of the three leading causes of death among older teenagers are homicide and suicide. And that is one of the wealthiest nations that has ever existed on the face of the earth those statistics of course are just the tip of the iceberg young people are experiencing widespread anxiety and depression undoubtedly this is a contributing factor to the sudden and radical surge of children identifying as transgender or gender fluid they're unhappy with the way life is and they want it to be different this will make it different Furthermore, in our current cultural moment, they know that the moment they come out and say, I'm considering or I'm gender fluid or I'm changing something, they're going to get thousands upon thousands of strangers giving them affirmation. And even most of the people near them are going to be uh, feel compelled to give them affirmation as well. So undoubtedly, this sense of widespread depression and discouragement and anxiety is at least fueling This massive problem. Many young people want life to be dramatically different than what they are experiencing, and I scarcely need to tell you that is not restricted to teenagers. This is widespread in our society. Well, it turns out that the first century Greco-Roman world was also filled with a sense of gloom and hopelessness. We should probably remind ourselves that the pagan view of the afterlife was really rather bleak and dark. Um, uh, ancient uh, Romans and ancient Greeks did not try to comfort each other at funerals by saying, well, they're in a better place, right? Because their view of the afterlife was one that was dark and miserable. Um, They would have thought it was very redundant for Joel Osteen to title his book, Your Best Life Now. Of course your best life is now, because when you die, it is going to get worse. Now, if that's your worldview that all your suffering and losses in this present age are horrible tragedies. Because this is the only time you ever have for your life to be really good and meaningful. As you get older and your health declines, you're not looking forward to a day when your body's going to be resurrected. You're going, all my best days were behind me. And actually, day after day, it is just getting worse. The people whom Peter is writing to we're leaving their security, their wealth, most of their extended family relationships and most of their vocational opportunities behind them. Nevertheless, Peter is telling them that they have every reason to praise the God who is sovereignly bringing all these things to pass. Is that the way that you look at your life? Well, it's important to see that's because this isn't your best life. Yes, it's true that even in this life you are given brothers and sisters in Christ to share your life with. You are given a present joy of walking with God in the power of the Holy Spirit. You are given his word to understand who he is, to understand who we are. There are many actual blessings that we receive in this life. But as Paul says, if in this life we hoped only, then we are the most miserable of people. But You have an eternity stretched before you by a God who loves you with an everlasting love. And that ought to reshape the way that we experience the ups and downs and even the genuine hardships of this life. Even being exiled from our homeland does not separate us from the love of God. Indeed, even in this life, these early Christians get to experience the the joys of knowing God and being grafted into his family. But their true comfort comes from looking beyond this life to the age which is to come. So Peter wants to encourage us by telling us who we are and by reminding us of what our God and Father has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. But we really still are stuck with dealing with the question, what about all the suffering? I mean, you know the question. If God is all good, like he is, if if, if God is all-powerful, and he is, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And by the way, even if people ask you that question about some poor child somewhere else in the world who is suffering horribly, in the back of their minds, they're really thinking about themselves. Why must I suffer so much if this God you are telling me about is entirely good And in particular, even Christians can wonder, why are we suffering so much as the people of God? Um, She was not a model Christian, if she was a Christian at all. Uh, But Mother Teresa had a pretty good line about this. She said, it's not a surprise that the Lord has so few friends when the world sees how he treats them. Well, that's actually mistaken it says the Lord treats us on the world's terms, that he allows his people, he leads his people His suffering, is not going to be inviting to the world on the world's terms. But on God's terms, once he has given us a new heart, we count the sufferings to be light, because the blessing of knowing God and knowing the forgiveness of our sins is so much better. Peter wants us to see our own suffering in a new light, knowing that Almighty God is using our suffering for his own glory and for our good. Look at verses 6-9 through with me. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, trials and hardships are like the fire in a furnace that's used to test metals. In this case, But trials and hardships deal with something much more valuable than gold that perishes. They are testing the genuineness of our faith and reveal that our faith is the genuine article. Now, I want to suggest that's not just something for other people to see, but as they look upon your life and they see you going through trials with faith, and they recognize she's really a believer, he's really a believer. I want to suggest this also works for us, particularly early on in your Christian walk. The first time you go through an extended period of suffering and hardship as a believer, then you can look back and say, I trusted Jesus through all of that. God uses that experience to settle you in your faith, to give you confidence that you really are his, that in fact he has worked in your heart a true and saving faith. And of course, strengthening our faith through trials is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying it, sanctifying us. Uh, Martin Luther puts this really, really well. He writes, Just as the fire does no harm to the gold, devours it not, neither diminishes it, but only serves it, for it takes from it all dross so that it becomes indeed pure and genuine so does the fire and heat of persecution and of all opposition indeed grieve us and cause the old Adam pain beyond measure so that those exercised thereby become sad and for a time impatient, yet their faith will thereby become pure and genuine like refined gold and silver. If you know anything about Luther's life, you know he understood what it meant to walk through the fiery furnace, clinging to Jesus Christ. And he's right. The fire will not harm our faith. It will simply remove the dross. Furthermore, when Peter says that the tested genuineness of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he is not merely speaking about something that will take place subjectively inside of us, When Christ is revealed in glory, we will be fully revealed with him. And all the ways in which God's people through the ages have chosen faithfulness and hardship over faithlessness and ease, choices that were frequently mocked at the time, will be revealed for what they truly were, trusting the living God. Now, Peter says that this will result in praise and honor and glory, But he does not tell us whose praise and honor and glory it will be. So I ask you, dear beloved, will this praise and honor and glory be yours, or will this praise and honor and glory be Christ's when Christ comes again? The answer to that question is both. Right? God is going to bless Christ and exalt him. The whole world will see in all his glory, what an extraordinary Savior he is. But you will participate in Christ's glory and be shown as those who were his faithful followers. The answer is both. Please keep in mind that if you cling to Jesus in his humiliation, Jesus will cling to you in his exaltation that you will also Receive praise and honor and glory. Isn't that is actually um, part of Paul's point in Philippians chapter 2 in this wonderful hymn about Christ's incarnation and that is exaltation. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves. Right? This is something for you to have. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right, that's the arc of Jesus' life. But I think there's a sense in which having this mind in you, Paul is saying the same thing. Be humbled with Christ, and he will exalt you in due time. In fact, right toward the end of his life, in 2 Timothy... He writes to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, and he says this, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's God's principle. And he goes on to say that God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. So Peter continues in verse eight with words that make clear But the Christians he is writing to were not among our Lord's original disciples, right? They didn't have the blessings and privileges that Peter did of walking with our Lord for three years. And this actually puts them, in many ways, more in our camp than in Peter's. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Although your salvation is completely yours the moment you first believe, you do not yet fully experience your salvation until Christ returns. When Christ returns in glory, you will be snatched up to meet with him in the air, and you will be transformed, and you will receive the glorified body And that is the full experience of the salvation that Christ came to bring to you. And so even now, in the midst of our trials, we walk by faith and not by sight. Yet even now, we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And we look forward to that day when our faith shall become sight, because our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, will never let us go. As we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, Jesus has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Beloved, there is a world of comfort in knowing that you belong body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we both rest and rejoice in who we are, in what God has done for us, and the knowledge that the Lord is using the very hardships that bring us to tears for his glory and for our good. He is using them in order to refine us, in order to glorify himself, and in order to prepare both us and Christ for an eternal weight of glory. Amen.